Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig, and this is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. This is my first away game on the Brunig's cast. We're actually staying with our friends right now. We're in hostile territory right now. Well, well, I mean, yeah, we're in Connecticut. Uh, maybe that qualifies as hostile territory. In the belly of the beast, uh, coming to you. Well, but we're in our friend's house, which is really nice. Uh... It's an oasis in the belly of the beast. It's a cozy, it's a really cozy attic room we're staying in. Such a cozy room. You know, it's really nice. That's true. But you got to keep your eye on the ball and the beast that we're within, you I know. Uh, the uh, the Golden Coast, is that what they call it? Something? I think that's California. There's something like that. I, I don't know. We're not actually quite by the... Let me see if I can find it. The I Connecticut Golden Coast. Some sh- I'm just getting Connecticut Golden Corral, so we're not at the Connecticut Golden Corral. No, we're definitely. I'm. I'm shocked there even is one. Honestly, uh, Matt, have you ever dined at the uh, Golden? M- Corral? Many times as a child. Many times. <laughs> what was your standard Golden Corral get? What would you? Uh, Get on that roast beef? Well, no. I didn't like to go to the one where you had to have the man cut the thing for you. Yeah. Uh, Too fancy for you. It's just uncomfortable. It's yeah. like this little guy is just sitting there waiting for you. It's weird. I would just kind of get the stuff in the metal containers, you know? Like what? I don't really remember, you know, whatever was there. Some rolls mac and cheese or something and then <laughs> i would get ice cream yeah that soft serve is not a joke yeah that that's pretty good that's pretty good you know what else was good in texas i used to go to sweet tomatoes it was like a soup and salad bar not great no that shit was right up my alley i love that place wouldn't wouldn't recommend i would i th- I thought it was fantastic you get so much soup there i it's love complicated soup. i don't know how to Construct my own soup or construct my own well, salad. You don't have to construct matter. your own soup, but you do have to construct. You are responsible for constructing your own salad. That's not what I'm here for. Like, you know, <laughs> if I wanted to make my own meal, I'd do that at home, wouldn't I? Oh, well, but the vats of soup are amazing. I love soup. I like yeah, soup. Yeah, soup's fine. How can you go wrong with soup? Some of those HEB stores had good soup bars as well. They're all soup's good, really. All soup is good. I fully, I fully agree. I confirm that. Soup is so amazing. I love all soups, honestly. Except, I guess, Chunky Ted Cruz soup. What? You know? Well, you, did you not hear that Ted Cruz like had 50 million cans of Chunky soup in his basement or whatever? Uh, is he a is he a survivalist? Uh, and I think he was just like kind of crazy in a in a like maybe dis- he's like a couponer. Al- alarming way. <laughs> he might be a couponer. Uh, uh, who knows? But uh, all my best to Beto, a uh, friend of the cast. Uh no, I don't I don't know. I haven't looked into him, so I wouldn't go that far. Oh, well, I'm uh, one half of our best to Beto. Uh you know, Matt needs to research this shit before he gets on board, I guess. Yeah, I don't pay that much attention to elections, frankly. Great. <laughs> That's going to make you a popular man in the coming weeks. I'm a policy man, you know. Oh, well, yeah. I work with whoever and especially across the aisle. I don't think you've ever worked across the aisle. They're all across the aisle for okay, me, all right, every okay. single one all of right. them. Well, so. moving on to hot topics this week, uh, there was a uh, uh, survey 
that rated confidence in institutions. And for Democrats, the institution they're most confident in is Amazon. Number one, Amazon. Number one. This is what I've been telling people. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, Matt Brunig, he just likes Amazon. He's really this or that. And I've been telling people, everyone likes Amazon. Everyone loves Amazon. Who doesn't like Amazon? You go yeah. online, you point at what you want, and it comes to your door. What yeah. else could I mean, what else could you want? And my beloved Lord and Master, Jeff Bezos, uh, also owns Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and I just have to say, I love Jeff. I don't ever want to offend him. And uh, thank you, sir, my Lord, uh, for keeping my family alive with your generous rations of bountiful grain. Uh, I'm actually, the way that they pay me at the Post, and Matt knows this, is that every week they count up all the clicks my, my pieces got, and then there's an index by which they use to apportion grain to my family. It's like sp- it's like the Spotify uh, reverse Dutch auction. Yeah, I think that's what they call it. Yeah. I don't even know. But anyways, what you do is there's a set pot of money that goes into labor compensation. Yeah, and y- the share of that pot you get is equal to your share of total clicks yeah. into the website. Exactly, that's how it works. And in, um, in our case, it's a big pot of wheat. The union negotiated for that. I thought that was a strange decision, but you know. But that's the way we do it. That's I, how democracy works inside the know, union sometimes. That's how it goes. And so Jeff, you know, he portions uh, however much uh, barley and wheat he's going to uh, give to us, the, the, the take miners. And then uh, depending on how many clicks our takes get, that's how much grain we get to grind into flour and make bread. So And it comes in yeah. Amazon boxes. It does. It, with a big that's smile. So there's a convenience. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, sometimes there are ads on it for uh, for Marvel movies. You know, yeah, which are good. You should see them. I hear. And the ads, the ads are good. The ads are good. They're very well made, very crisp. Uh, it does. Uh, this is all bullshit, by the way. I have a salary, um, but uh, it does not surprise me that people are very confident in Amazon because it works really well. Oh yeah, I mean, I've had them lose some stuff before, and then I just get on my, I just go into like the chat stuff. Yeah, you know, I don't even have to call anyone. A plus any business out there where I don't have to call anyone to get my stuff taken care of. Ooh, love that. That that already. I mean, I'll pay 10, 15 percent premium. Just so I don't have to talk to another person. You put a little chat app on your website. You've got my business. And you just like, hey, my stuff didn't even show up. What's the deal? And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Here's your money back. And that's it. It's like like 10 seconds. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. It's remarkable. One time I ordered a rice cooker from Amazon. They sent me two and I didn't pay for it. And I checked my receipt and I. I yeah. And you contact them. And you said, I hey, did. I got two. And they're like, well, just keep the second one then. Yeah. They're like, lucky you. Congratulations. Thanks for trying to give it back. But it's yours now. And I gave it to someone at work. So I was like, thank you so much. That's amazing. You know what? That doesn't happen with your local mom and pop shop. It just doesn't. Mom and pop. You can never trust mom and pop. You know, mom and pop are in many ways businessmen cosplayers. I don't trust my own mom and pop. You know, it's like, hey, man, if you want to, if you want to simulate running a business, if that's your thing, just do like me when I simulate driving a train or simulate driving a truck. I get the Euro truck simulator and I run it on the computer. Don't get us and mess with us yeah. and take up retail space. Just go on the get yeah. your VR headset on and you can pretend to be a shopkeeper. But uh, why yeah. are you messing, you know, taking resources? <laughs> if you if you want to do this, uh, just go on Amazon and order yourself Roller Coaster Tycoon. That's it. <laughs> That's there you go. You That's it. <laughs> uh, what, what, out of curiosity, who did the Republicans trust? The troops? 
Uh, it was it, the troops or the cops were one too. Oh man, um, I don't remember who won. I assume the troops probably. What are the cops but the troops of the streets? That's the thing. I mean, yeah. even the the you know, even the Democrats. I think you know we kind of they're yeah. basically the same. Yeah. They're you know remember when we went to Mission Barbecue? I do. I don't know if that. we talked about this on the I pod. I don't think we did. We went with our friend Will Butler from Arcade Fire. Okay, well. That's what happened. All right. Well, hopefully he's okay with that being known. He's fine. He follows us on Twitter. I don't Um, think he's trying to hide it. (laughs) Um, It's good. I don't know how to edit things. So So you all um, know that. Will, I'm sorry, man, if you were trying to keep (laughs) your connections to the Brunig (laughs) Complex secret. Uh, We did go to Mission Barbecue with him to have lunch. And... uh, And well, so what was interesting, Mission Barbecue is a troop-themed restaurant. It was really odd. And I knew about it. I mean, Matt's not shitting you when he says this. There are troops. There's, there's like no. This is explicitly a troop themed restaurant. And so, like, the walls are covered in pictures of troops. But uh, the thing is yeah. interesting is they do conflate because you've got, you've got um, on one of the walls, you know, you've got sort of like, uh, like an army uniform. You got an army a uniform, Navy, a Navy, Air Force, Air Force and then you got Marines, a cop uniform, and, and the cop uniform has a riot helmet and a baton. Yeah. That's like their impression of what a cop uniform yeah, is. Yeah, and so like, and there are <laughs> patches all over the walls that come from different units and battalions. Well, and they they and went full blown. Like their definition of cop and troop is even more excessive. Like they had like, like, uh, you know, like dog catchers. Yeah, they had and, animal control patches. Yeah, they're like, man, this, we just love first sort of responders. enforcers of various yeah, sorts. We don't care what the laws are. We just want them enforced. And I was like, but well, no bureaucrats, which I feel like is no, a little no, yeah, kind of a snub. You've yeah. you got to be a uniform. troops up there as well. Yeah, why not an NLRB lawyer? You know, I'm 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 a cop of the labor law. Basically, you were back in the day, yeah, before I got fired. Yeah, you were a loose cannon cop on the edge. I know that's really yeah, <laughs> that, that was very true. And then you got yeah, the, the man took you down, but not for good. No, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Now I'm podcasting, and yep. and all you folks, except for the ones who steal it, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you're you making do. this happen. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, you're supporting your Patreon.com/slash/thebrunigs if you want to uh, pay your fair share. Support your regulatory troops. Uh, in a sense, in some fashion. Speaking of regulations and enforcement, the D.C. Attorney General has opened an investigation in the Archdiocese of Washington, which from I can, uh, from what I can tell in my, uh, in my readings of public documents that have already been published and in my own reporting is dirty as hell. Uh, so good luck, uh, DCAG. The DCAG is not actually very much empowered, however, unlike other state yeah, attorneys Yeah, it general. has limitations. I, I, I've tried to reach out to them from time to time, and, and they're really, really friendly, um, but they do kind of say, eh, we're not, you know, it's like the same with anything in D.C. We're yeah. not a real government, ultimately. Yeah, they just um, let us, They uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. We kind of pretend to govern, and everyone humors us. Yeah. Um, I think they have some powers, but not that many. Yeah, so uh, the Archdiocese of Washington obviously was led for a while by uh, Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, Uncle Ted, and then Donald Wuerl, and now they're looking at uh, installing a a new archbishop soon, probably after the Synod. Uh, And uh, there have, uh, you know, there's, uh, if you you poke around in the headlines and if you talk to folks around the area, you'll hear that, uh, that not all is well. Uh, additionally, I have, uh, I have been in contact with the archdiocese at several points during my own reporting, and it's been an incredibly hostile experience. Uh, so, 
Uh, I don't know what's gonna what's gonna come out of that. We'll have to see. I'll be watching it and and doing the best I can to report on it as well. Uh, uh, but I'd also like to like to put on the table that this uh, is destroying me inside, and uh, that my soul is uh, is uh, what's left to destroy though. Ultimately, uh, there was a lot left of me oh. to destroy. I found. No, I was not, not of me. I'm empty. No, I know. I, I was not fully cynical and completely crushed and um, totally demoralized until I started reporting on the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. And now uh, I, I feel a huge yawning void where my soul used to be. Well, you know, that's it's a good update. Uh, can we go back to Amazon? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, so yeah. I wanted to say something, okay? Okay, hit me. So, you know, there are people, I, I, I feel like this is a wake-up call to some degree. You know, Amazon is the sort of, and I don't know what most confidence means, but in general, people have good feelings about them. Yeah. And it's because, you know, it's a great service. It is. And but there are people in 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 the in the D.C. policy world, I feel like, who have uh, sort of lathered them up into uh, lathered themselves up into a kind of self-delusional state where they're like, man, people, people out there, they hate Amazon. They you know, you can run on that. And I'm always like, what the hell are you talking about? Amazon? Well, I mean, Amazon's great. The service is awesome. You really think like normal people out there who are watching their TV shows and getting free two day shipping on anything, any product in the world, like that they're sitting there stewing over Amazon. Like that's just not the case. Now, obviously, Amazon has a lot of like negative labor records, and but you got to somehow like get that out to people and yeah, hope yeah, that exactly. they hope that they care about it. Like, but you can't just assume that. Yep, everyone out there is sitting there and thinking about how warehouse uh, fetchers have to, you know. Well, and I think that, that the DC thing. policy folks who claim that everyone hates Amazon are mainly basing it on the bigness of Amazon and not the labor violations of Amazon. Well, it all kind of mixes together, but yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. It's like, oh, people don't like Amazon because it hurts small business and that sort of thing. And like, one, I don't know that people really care all that much about that. But two, Amazon's like, hey, if you're a small business, you sell stuff on our website. And then three, you're like you're right. Um, that's still a, it's a weird pretension. Um, and I'm not saying that it could still be objectively the case that it's bad, but when you need to distinguish between what is objectively the case and and assuming that you can just go out and like run against Amazon, like that's going to be like a really successful approach. But I have a solution. Okay. Okay. To all of this, right? So you've got the people who are like, I don't like that Amazon's big, and I think that you know they're hurting the small businessman and that sort of thing, right? They're anti-Amazon, and um, not just like, oh, we need to fix Amazon. We need to make sure that Amazon pays a good wage and treats their workers well and that sort of thing. But like, they're just kind of fundamentally against this premise of this like private, big company where it's sort of like a platform that sells everything. You know, yeah. like against that premise. Okay, you got that. Um, but then you also have got sort of more socialist leaning folks like myself, who's like, I love big stuff. I mean, come on, you know, I'm sort of, you know, in the Soviet style. I love these big companies, I love these big factories. I love, you know, I don't Industrial like industrial pies. Yeah, I don't like twee bullshit. You know, production. Let let's get some meat going. And but I don't like. You know, I don't like it being privately owned, you know, either. Yeah, yeah. So here's the solution. Uh-oh. United States Postal Service. Okay. They own their, they open up their own online retail store where it's like a platform and you can sell anything through it. 
Okay. And they integrate that with their shipping. Yeah. Right? Because they're already a shipper. This is the thing I feel like people don't realize. The big weakness with Amazon, at least in the retail sphere, is, I mean, what's the big thing Amazon does ultimately is it ships stuff. But it doesn't ship stuff. It relies on FedEx, UPS, and USPS. Yeah. So if I'm USPS and, uh, you know, I'm trying to check Amazon's power, I just open my own store. You don't, you don't need to buy your, you know, Soylent's on Amazon anymore. You can just buy your Soylent's directly through the USPS Everything store. Get it shipped to you through, you know, the post office. Um, Unbeatable idea, I think. There you go. So that checks the power of Amazon. Boom. And also we get to maintain a big online everything store, which is way better than having to go mom and pop local shit. And I got to go to the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. I don't have time for that. And I don't want to talk to people. There you go. Solution. Solution. Everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. Except a good for time. the people who want the small stuff, but who gives a shit about them? You yeah, know, you can go live in a little Bavarian Christmas village if that's and what you, you want to do. You can get a VR going and simulate, okay. simulate Hobbit living. Uh, the Everything Store by Matt Brunig coming in 2020. Yeah, brought to you by the Postal Service. Yeah, not the band. And then imagine this. Everyone's saying the Postal Service should have a bank, too. I don't disagree necessarily. So, okay, cool. So now I have my bank at the Postal Service. I get my little Postal Service debit card, and I just use that to buy everything from the Postal Service Everything Store. It's no longer postal banking. It's postal economy. Everything is the post office. It's, I mean, incredible. Uh, everything is the post office. Uh, that's my campaign when I run. What if everything was the post office? That's going to be my slogan. <laughs> what if everything was the post office? And, uh, and, and, uh, you also have some hot geoengineering takes, which have gotten you in a little bit of trouble. A little bit, a little bit. So I made this argument, okay, that, uh, well, you know, if you think about it, you're thinking about climate change. We think a lot about, like, a lot of people do this thing where they go, uh, how have things changed from the point, uh, from uh, a somewhat arbitrary uh, e moment in time placed at some, like, pre-industrial period, like, a few hundred years ago? Yeah. And they're like, well, and everything's kind of measured from there. And that, that becomes, like, the implicit baseline in the way that people think about things and talk about things. And so there's this sort of... Uh, uh, this ends up biasing the discussion in a, in a strange way because people um, sort of think about, uh, you know, preserving the climate or making sure the climate, you know, stays as it was or whatever. But one of the, the things that this argument opens you up to, and conservatives act, have actually been pretty pretty good at, f at, at exploiting this uh, hole in the, in the way that this framing works, is people say, well, the climate has changed throughout history all the time, right? And when I was at the University of Oklahoma, I remember I had, uh, they have like a really big climate meteorology thing there. And I took a class in that uh, department. And this was one of the things that, you know, was talked about, obviously. And, and the professor there that at my class, she, she had made a point that always stuck with me, which was, um, you know, the issue is not so much, you know, climate change per se, like, oh, climate has always been the same and now it's changing. The issue is that all of human civilization as it currently exists uh, is adapted to the existing climate. That's really the problem. And so even if the climate does change naturally, and even if the climate was changing naturally now, which it isn't, even if it were, it would still be an issue. Because yeah. human beings, as they exist right now, exist within this current narrow climate band, and we got to keep it that way. And so my point 
following off of, you know, her observations and sort of pondering this over the years has always been that, look, it's not even just a matter of like stopping global warming in this immediate sense. We have to develop the capacity to freeze the current climate in its current state forever because the historical past of the climate is that it's all, it's gone up and down. We've had ice ages. We've had periods that are, that are even hotter than the period that we're going into now. Um, and if that's, if the natural, uh, uh, if the natural rhythm of the of the climate is that it goes up and down, and human beings actually need a flat climate that's accustomed to where we've built everything up, then we're going to have to develop technology to control the climate and make sure it doesn't change. And that technology would, under any normal definition, be considered geoengineering, right? And so that's sort of my position is that you know the sort of leftist uh, 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 arguments that people make sometimes against geoengineering are incoherent if you know what we're trying to do fundamentally is make sure the climate stays as it is. The only way to keep the climate as it is forever is geoengineering. Period. There you go. And you know everyone freaks out and 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 you know there's there's there aren't like good clear arguments against it and so you wind up in really weird um positions and you can kind of back people out into strange positions so like one of them is um here's a good example that i thought was really funny um when you're thinking about so how would you do geoengineering so one of them is going to be well we have all this excess carbon in the climate right in the atmosphere i should say carbon eating nanobots carbon eating nanobots there are some um um researchers that are focusing on you know basically these big industrial installations that would uh you know essentially suck it out of the air um right yeah. now those are those are not like economical but uh, occasionally you see research published on them as they're like working on it and stuff like that and um <laughs> my position as i tried to push this online was um well this is the same thing as planting trees yeah like what is a planting tree the idea of planting a tree is that you're going to um suck carbon out of the climate and then store it in a tree yeah that's the whole premise of it but like the people who are against geoengineering are for planting trees and you say well why what if this research pans out and they basically have a way to suck it out of the air and store it isn't that the same thing as a tree and then you get these very complicated, like, yeah. what is the distinction? You're like, oh, I get it. It's not beautiful to you. A tree does something for you that yeah. a, a, an equivalent installation that even though it did the same thing, sucked carbon out of the air and stored it, doesn't do for you. Yeah. Um, anyways, to cut this short, there was a piece <laughs> in Jack the Magazine from this um, person named sylvia robero okay um and uh i thought i thought so it was a piece that was just geoengineering bad geoengineering bad geoengineering bad that sort of stuff and it, it contained a lot of the sort of confusing positions but i went to the website of this organization um that they're, that they're involved in called the etc group okay and i was like okay well what what is your solution like have you guys thought about these issues okay and here's a, here's a quote from the website. You ready? Okay, ready. 
ETC group opposes geoengineering and other false solutions to climate change and supports peasant-led acroecological responses to the climate crisis. With ass. <laughs> Not the false solutions. Yeah. The peasant-led acroecological ones. What is the acro prefix there? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, agro. Agroecological. Yes. Okay, so agrarian. Peasant-led agrarian Pe Peasant, activity. you know, because peasants are farmers. Right, right. I um, mean, yeah, no, they, they work for lords and they they, work. they live on their land. Yes. And yeah, so, you know. Um, Actually, they're, they're part of the land in some jurisdictions in the, in the 12, 13, 1400s. Well, in a, yeah, in a sense, in a sense. Um, hopefully peasants all ha are of the same mind about policy solutions. I don't know, are peasants cap and traders? <laughs> are they carbon <laughs> <Yeah>. tax people? <laughs> I mean, what's also funny is as far as I can tell, this is a Canadian organization. Are there, are there peasants in Canada? I mean, in a, in a normal sense of the word. I mean, I, as um, far as I know, is this the Maoist approach to uh, to climate change? The rare feudal approach to climate change. <laughs> Peasants. I mean, it's just like, okay, guys. All right. Let's, I'm glad we're being serious for a second here. They did go through a medieval warm period. So it's maybe peasants have a negative impact on the climate. You don't know. I'm not saying there's causation there, but there's a correlation. Is Sylvia a peasant? I mean, I feel like... Well, no, because peasants can't read and write. <laughs> right. So... I feel like there's a performative contradiction if the organization wants a peasant-led uh, climate solution but is not itself composed of uh, subsistence farmers. That seems a little bit strange because how can I trust what they say? I mean, they're supposed to be leading, but they also say they don't want to be leading. They want the peasants to lead. Um, peasant I don't see why peasants couldn't be okay with geoengineering. Of course. I'm sure you sit down. I mean, yeah. there are hundreds of millions of peasants. I bet you'll find plenty of them that are like, hell yeah, I Are love. we nanobots like a little Pac-Man that travels around the atmosphere? Hell yeah. There's got to be some autistic peasants. There's got to be. And they would probably love your industrial approach to everything. Everything is the post office, even climate change. Well, you notice peasants, uh, you know, historically have uh, a lot of them have, uh, have left the farm for uh, industry for various reasons. Well, I mean, the, I, I was under the impression that the, that way of life had kind of fallen apart under the under the new regime of industrial capitalism. But I guess uh, not. Well, it depends on where you're at, you know. Certainly, uh, in like uh, developed countries, well, it's, she's it's in, this is a, this is an <laughs> argument that's happening in Canada and America. So it's I it's a Canada Canadian organization, but you know, sometimes mm -hmm. these organizations like to imagine themselves to be quite global, uh, even if you know they're not necessarily, um, you know. I mean, it's also all in English. So um, all right, well, so you got to hear both sides. Um, Mm, not sure uh, that I was aware that there was still a heavy agro or agrarian peasant contingent uh, in the in North American climate change conversation. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm interested to hear that. Uh, my my acquaintance with peasants basically drops off around the 1500s, 1600s. Um, well, uh, sharecroppers are peasants. That's true. I mean, we don't call them that, but that's what they are. So we had those well into the 20th century. That's true. That's true. I, I had sort of assumed that American farming had been overcome by 
uh, only two percent of the workforce works industrial is an, is an agricultural worker, and of course, an agricultural worker is going to include people who just like drive big ass tractors and stuff. Yeah. So I mean, well, yeah. it, it is a it's a it's a little bit of a it's a it puts you at somewhat of a disadvantage. Your anti sentimental approach to everything, but including politics, because uh, aesthetics and politics are closely intertwined and linked which is, I think, a, an explanation that offers quite a bit of illumination in our current political moment. Uh, but, uh, but Matt rejects this connection. Yeah, I mean, ultimately. It's um, bloat. But also, like, aesthetics can go in all sorts of directions. Well, correct, correct. I, I don't, f I am not aesthetic. I mean, there's a community garden near our house. I find it disgusting. Why? It's just aesthetically disgusting. You have all these, like, elderly people out there you know tilling the lead soaked soil and i'm just like this is ridiculous there's a gr grocery store like three blocks from here what are we doing to clarify matt's position he's not saying the elderly people themselves are disgusting no he's but watching the fact that they're laboring is yes. upsetting to him <laughs> you are 70 years old you should be chilling you should be you know watching tv going to the programs you know interacting with the youth and that sort of thing not growing, you know, your food. Like, good lord, we we don't have enough money for you to just buy it. Uh, it's 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 awful. I mean, it's the same thing as seeing a you know an elderly greeter at Walmart or whatever. Yeah, you're like you shouldn't you shouldn't have to stand here all day. You, know, no. you should be able to relax and. I mean, I guess it's yourself. it's you know, I don't know how much people. If it's recreational and you like it, I guess that's fine. I wouldn't judge that. Like, but that is me withholding my aesthetics that's me going oh i don't find that very pretty but if you do okay that's cool you see what i'm saying yeah i might i myself uh am much more aesthetically driven and do find nature incredibly beautiful and moving and would probably be more uh aesthetically inclined to planting trees than uh having a giant uh industrial carbon sucker you could do both, but the but logically yeah, that's my feeling they're is the that, same. You know, I would have to see the harms and benefits associated with each one, and that, and I would probably incline to a situation where you did both, I, uh, including the carbon-eating nanobots, which would maybe be very small and sort of undetectable. Uh, who knows? Who really knows in this in this brave new world? There's cloud into. seeding. Clouds are pretty. They look like marshmallows. That's um, that's very true. Thank you. And uh, you know, then there's also the like you know, volcanic cloud type stuff where they pump sulfur into the air. That one's maybe just, you can't even see much. That's another I approach. I smell it. Um, and, uh, then you, and then you have more elaborate stuff. We won't go too, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to get too deep into geoengineering. A little bit of sci-fi here, but, uh, but that's the battle Matt's currently embroiled in. Um, and so for our big topic of the week... Should we? So we didn't. Um, we don't have an ad, unfortunately. People need to step up their ad making. I could try to come up with one on the spot if you want. <laughs> no, I'll read an ad. Should I read an ad? I think you should. Yeah. Th this is just a you know. These were user contributed ads. They are sponsors, so we're obligated. Well, no, the issue. So the issue is not that the quality per se is bad. It's just some of it's too long, and you know what I mean, like. Can't go on for that. You got to give a snappy ad copy, guys. Yeah. All right. So try. So try better next time. Oh, um, <laughs> easy, dude. Man. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, okay. 
Are you a member of the super wealthy looking to rebuild your social capital after a lifetime of profiting off the labor of others? Labor is spelled with a U. Oh, well, so this is a UK ad. Great news. The League of Philanthropists is seeking new members. Satisfy your desire to be feted at lavish dinners and ceremonies as you accrue a literal bushel of plaques, trophies, and medals celebrating your capacity to write checks. Checks is C-H-E-Q-U-E-S. Amazing. Blush with pride as your Wikipedia page swells with meaningless initiatives that funnel money away from the people and into vanity projects that do more harm than good. Death shouldn't be the end of your meddling. Join the League of Philanthropists and rest assured that your legacy is safe thanks to all those public buildings you've named after your dog. Very inspiring. There you go, League of Philanthropists. Look it up. It's very inspiring. League of Philanthropists.io. And they uh, they support the, p- the cast, so uh, hopefully we'll have an endowed building one day for the Brewcast. Yes, you can name that building after your dog if you'd like. Yeah, I don't give a shit what you name a building if you're giving it to me. Unless you can name like my house after your dog if you want. Honestly, if you want to right buy price. it. the right price. Yeah, you could, if you want to buy me a house, you can call it the everyone who lives here is a dumbass house, and I'll just put that right out on front. Absolutely. I will spray paint that on the front of the house. And Yeah, but the joke's on you, man, because I get to live in a house. Yeah, I ain't paying rent. So, ultimately, you take what you can get on this bitch of an earth. I'll tattoo it on my forehead. Well, I would probably wouldn't go that far. Depends. Everyone's got a price. <laughs> Everyone's got a price. That's true. There's probably some amount of money I would tattoo some shit on my forehead for. Uh, it wouldn't be blasphemous, though. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I don't have to wait for some deranged billionaire to pay me a bunch of money to feel uh, extremely bad about my faith because the church is doing that all on its own right now. Yeah, and they have at least a billion dollars. At least. I've been having nightmares. Do they publish financial accounts? Swarms of black flies have been in my home. Uh, Do they show up in the nonprofit, uh, nonprofit serving households sector of the national accounts? Probably. Deep, deep depression. Every time I'm in mass, I just... Uh, my heart is bleeding on the floor. Please stop what you're doing. But you get it replenished with um, the blood of Jesus. So there you go. That's all there is. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus. So for our big topic this week, uh, moving on from hot topics to the big topic, the big kahuna, the meat of the cast, what you all tune in for, Oh, so am I? Yeah. What is the big topic? We talked about this. Could you tell me? I forgot. Oh, no, I forgot too. Oh, no. Um. Oh, geez. We wrote it down. Oh, is it the socialism thing? Yeah, it's the big socialism report. That's oh, right. Oh, did we want to do Bernie v. Warren too? Oh, yeah. Do you want to go back? N- no. Okay. There's no going back. I can't There's edit. No going back. All right. So another hot topic, <laughs> a last hot topic, a postscriptum on the hot topic. Uh, is that Bernie v. Warren is kicking off in earnest with the camps kind of separating. Well, well, I don't know if anyone's separated, but we're now having people, there are now efforts to distinguish between them, which I think are very interesting. Um, I've been following them extremely closely because I'm not myself sure what to say. They should have just um, made an agreement ahead of time, announced together on a single ticket. They should have, yeah, what they should have done and they should have done, they should have said, look, we're going to both run and... Uh, one of us will get two years and the other one will get the other two years, you know? 
or some, or, or just announce well, PVP. Well, we could switch every year. But it's uh, every running six against months. each other in the primaries. I always thought it would be extremely ugly, and I guess that's the opening salvo of what we're seeing here. Uh, it hadn't gotten ugly yet. It's just gotten weird because yeah. people are trying to distinguish them, and it's it's a little bit difficult to do that. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to distinguish them on the level of policy, but not on the level of theory. Yeah, so that 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 that, that is my view as well. Um, but that's going to get complicated. So so here's the thing, right? So we got David Dayan at the New Republic. The piece is called "The Essential Differences Between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren." He's, a, we, he's a man. That's what the difference is. That's one difference. They do have different She's gender identities. Yeah. Um, Essential. One's Jewish. One's Native American. Okay. Um, Bosker Sankara at the Guardian. Think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren are the same? They aren't. They are also true. Not identical in a metaphysical different sense. Different people at the um, end of the day. Thisness is different between them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though you know, you know, some of uh, her uh, molecules might have at some point become some of his molecules because that's, really that's beautiful. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, in a I kind collide. of ship of Theseus way. And so. David Dayan's approach is, I think the um, is I think the more difficult approach okay. um, here, because he tries to um, use their policy commitments to distinguish them. Yeah, and that is a is a is a dead end because they have very very similar policy. At commitments. this point, nominally, they yeah. will have all signed on to the same thing after the uh, last election. Warren uh, got on Medicare for all. Sure. Um, so the kind of things that you would normally say, oh, these these are what distinguish them or you might have said in the past are, are really not present anymore because they've all they all sign on to one another's bills and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. It's not just Warren. Of course, it's true of Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and yeah. Jill Brand and, and all the rest of them, except for Biden. Um, they've all kind of yeah, done that. Biden sucks. And so, you know, it struggles, it struggles. He tries to make this distinction between uh, uh, Bernie as someone who wants to be a market overhauler okay. and Warren as someone who wants to be a market reformer. Oh, well, I, I would have used those two words almost interchangeably. Um, actually, she, he uses a different word, market restructurer, okay. whatever. It's the same thing as reform, restructure, reform. But then you're like, uh, okay, well, yeah, one, um, I don't know, what's the difference between an overhaul and a restructure? Uh, t tough, tough. But that's more of a, a label issue. Yeah. And, and then it's like, okay, so give me these examples. And included in examples are things that they like, they agree on in theory, right? So one of them is Bernie Sanders' uh, Medicare for All. That's yeah. a market overhaul. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a nationalization of the health insurance sector. I don't know if I would call that a market overhaul. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I would call it a uh, an, uh, just an elimination of an entire sector of private industry. But uh, but the problem with that, if you're listing it policy wise, is Warren also yeah. has signed on to that bill. So I don't know. So what do you do? And then it's like, uh, well, here's another one. Um Bernie wants to make public colleges and universities tuition free. That's true. Is that market overhaul? They're already public. He's just subsidizing them more so that they can offer lower tuition. So the language here is, is a little bit uh, maybe difficult. Does she oppose increased tuition subsidies at public schools? I don't think so. I think she supports it. At least, you know, has said as much in the past. She's in his background education, so that would make sense, you yeah. know. 
So, and then one trillion dollar infrastructure investment. Is she opposed to roads and bridges? I doubt it. Mm. What does that have to do with overhauling a market? Isn't that how you always? I mean, is he is he planning to create a state-owned infrastructure company to do this, or is he just gonna do contracts for infrastructure? Con- yeah, isn't that what we already do? Yeah. I mean, when you build public buildings or build roads, you just hire a construction company to do it. That's it's still going to do it. It's just a lot of it. And so it's like that kind of stuff. But the the mm. distinction that I think is more useful is implied by the two different terms applied to their policy, which is that they have different theories of political economy, essentially. Yes. I I think what you have to do, and Bosker does this to some degree, um, or this is his primary approach. Who knows if he applies it the best, um, is to say, well, look, you can't just list their policies because at this point there's so much overlap right. you're just not going to do anything. What you got to do is you got to intuit in your mind using their history, using what animates them, using what they prioritize, using what they talk about yeah. to figure out you know, what they really care about, what, what they're really about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not yeah. just what have they signed their name on a letter to or a bill to, but what are they really about? Yeah. That I think is where you're going to have to go. And the problem with that approach is it's kind of unprovable in a deep way. Yeah. You know, cause you're trying to guess people's mental states uh-huh. and implicitly what you're saying is some of their behavior is indicative of their mental state and yeah. some of it is not. And uh, anyone who wants to disagree with you would be like, no, this, the behavior that you're discounting is not indicative of their mental state. That is also indicative and you're wrong to discount that behavior. And so you get into an unprovability area where you might say, well, Warren supports Medicare for all, but she didn't start doing that until after the last election when she was gearing up to run for president. And therefore, I don't think that she really does in a deep way. That would be a move you could make. And then someone else would be like, bullshit. She supports the bill. She came out for it, not only signed her name on it, but went on podcasts and interviews and, you know, did public messaging around it. So she does. You're yeah. wrong. And you're like, okay. I mean, how do I resolve that? I'm not inside her brain. Um, but that's basically how you're going to have to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. And there have already been our articles that have appeared. Vince Cathapollet had one in the nation that was sort of, immediate, you know, setting up hostility towards the Bernie people who are, who are still preferring Sanders over Warren. Oh, I didn't even see the Paula piece. So we've got three now. We've got Cathapollet in the nation, yeah. David Dayan in New Republic, Bosker in Guardian. Yeah. And so it, it seems like, unfortunately as the efforts to distinguish them ramp up and people are sorting out their preferences, I think Elizabeth Warren might stand a chance of inheriting the Hillary Clinton uh, uh, crowd uh, who who's, you know, hostile in some sense to uh, the Sanders left. And we might see a replay of the 2016 hostilities, unfortunately, this time between Warren and Sanders, which is painful because a lot of folks on the, on each side's, uh, on the Warren camp and the Sanders camp, they, they're very friendly. There have been so far, so this would be tough. It could get hostile. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it might not. I mean, I think it could get it could get hostile in the sense that the similarities, yeah. like it just becomes a game of, of, I don't know, where the only thing you can do is try to argue that whenever someone says, I don't believe this or whatever, you just basically say, nope, you're motivated by something that's else. That's what's going to happen. Is That'd it, be the only, yeah. and that's what they did with Clinton. And I, But I felt like it, it was, 
kind of ineffective because yeah. it was like, oh, f- there's huge daylight, not only between, you know what I mean? Yeah, there was big daylight there. And now that there's not as much daylight, the claims that anyone who opposes Warren in favor of Sanders is going to be, uh, you know, motivated by something else. Those, those claims are going to be probably even more common. Sure. Sure. Um, so that's that's something I'll be keeping an eye on. Uh, best of luck to everyone. Both teams will play hard. Leave it all on the field, and uh, and I'm going to be there and, and uh, I'm going to be observing that as in my role as a neutral arbiter. As a I policy. might return to my uh, my way of approaching elections prior to t- 2016 and and so far post 2016, which is uh, really just not not caring all that much. Yeah, I think I'll probably <laughs> do the same thing, and so. Uh, uh, another postscriptum, I guess, of hot topics we should throw in is this terrible shooting in Pittsburgh. Oh, yes, um, that happened this morning. Just happening um, this morning. Um, uh, Squirrel Hill. Squirrel Hill. Yeah, the Tree of Life uh, congregation, a synagogue. Uh, very, 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 very terrible news coming out of that zone. So, uh, we monitoring that as well. And uh, my deepest condolences, and in all seriousness and sincerity, to anybody who's been affected by that. That's terrible news. And uh, and now on to the big socialism report. Oh yes, okay, yes. Matt read that son of a bitch. I did. I actually read uh, almost all of it. I skipped some of the stuff about Ukrainian collective agriculture. All I they did was just uh, they just published selections from Stephen Miller's diary. <laughs> He's like, this was my this was my manifesto before I got a real job. And uh, if if he hadn't been hired at the White House, this manifesto would have been sent out to me- media outlets after a, a quote incident. Uh, but now, since he's working for Trump, he gets to publish it on the White House website. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I actually think that's a little bit strange because all he was really about is racism. I don't think he has any economic views per se. No, I um, mean, I think that a lot of those the racist nationalists feel like socialism is an inherently inclusive project, so it's hostile to their to their. Uh, goals maybe i mean there are obviously socialist uh nationalist types sure that's also true but that's not typically an american disposition yes that's also true uh, um, so what tell me tell me about this huge ass report well okay so it was the opportunity cost of socialism published by the council of economic advisors of the white house the CEA is usually kind of like, I don't know, uh, a grouping of a uh, dozen or so like professional economists that, you know, help advise the president or whatever. And, you know, typically it's a lot of fairly boring reports that they put out. Um, and from time to time, they ha- they'll put out a report that, you know, helps some sort of partisan goal. But, uh, you know, that's not most the output. This is a sort of uniquely weird uh, um, report <laughs> in that you don't usually get them trying to grasp at like what is socialism and yeah. like that's more of a political theory, political philosophy type type thing, not really an economics thing. And and of course you rent you, you you know just the the nature of trying to re- create a report like this is complicated for the same reasons that we've discussed many times on this, which is that you know uh, the only thing that the majority of socialists agree. Uh, about is that the majority of people who call themselves socialists aren't actually real socialists. That's uh, historically been the only thing you've ever gotten the majority of socialists to agree about. Um, and so, you know, immediately you publish a report like this and the majority of socialists go, no, what you're describing isn't isn't that. Right. And it's like, well, <laughs> it's like, well, that's going to be the same no matter what you publish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can publish a report in favor of. 
Yeah, and so like like for instance, when they say socialism refers to you know state ownership or whatever, you had a lot of people who go, ha, nope, wrong, and then uh, of course I'm like, well, I don't know that that's certainly a type of socialism. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a, the only kind, but like the idea of a worker state, you know, acting yeah. as the mechanism of collective ownership. The idea that that's not socialistic is, uh, I don't know, extremely ahistorical. Yeah, very and ahistorical, insane. I was going to say. Um, but, you know, whatever. The report itself is a little weird because they, they the things that they try to, like, prove as, like, uh, you know, their big object lessons in the failure of socialism is all, like, collective agriculture from the earliest 20th century yeah which is like just completely irrelevant these days are they in contact <laughs> with the peasant folks i know i yeah. actually there's <laughs> a very much a connection here yeah. where it's like both of you guys are living in a very weird s- scenario there are there are no yeah <laughs> it's not mal's china we're not uh, the socialists today are not advocating the smelting of metals on the freehold um and so it's just a weird uh, thing to be talking about in a country where there's almost no human beings who work in agriculture and the agriculture that does exist is carried out in a fairly uh, highly organized industrial m- style manner, right? Yeah. which is not collectivist in the sense that the agribusinesses are not owned by the public but you know are collectivist in the sense that it's not like individual farmers are yeah. out there you know what i mean like yeah. that it, it's these big entities which could very well be the state mm-hmm. um but so there's that and you're like okay whatever i don't know what to to to, to do with you vis-a-vis collective um agriculture yeah and then you get into some weird stuff about uh medicare for all yeah which um they describe as socialistic and and i i thought it was funny to watch the reaction because there were a lot of liberal pundits who are like um because they're reflexively anti-trump at this point they're very much like want to push back against that yeah and i actually think it's a good sign because it kind of shows you where medicare for all is going that there are liberal pundits now who are feel they need to defend it yeah because trump is now you know like anti-trumpism is is benefiting medicare for all in the discourse yeah because liberals now take it up out of anti-trumpism um better late than never but I mean, I would agree that it is Medicare for all is socialistic in the sense that we're talking about nationalizing the health insurance industry. Yeah, that's what we're doing. That That is a fairly classical thing um, by itself. It would not make the USA socialist country because that requires some sort of threshold of overall socialist penetration. You know what I mean? Mm. But uh, but like if you ignore that, uh, like you would say, yeah, like. I don't know if we nationalized every industry, would that be okay? Well then surely nationalizing one is uh, moving the ball uh, forward on it. Um, But they wind up in this weird uh, position because um, in trying to say Medicare for all is especially socialist, they, they struggle with the fact that they also don't want to say that current Medicare is socialist. Yeah. And you're like, well, certainly it's got to be like on the spectrum in some way. Yeah. If 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 expanding it would. If Medicare for all is socialist and like is going to destroy the economy, why is why does Medicare for elderly not do that? Or even more so, we have Medicare for elderly, Medicare for disabled, Medicaid for poor, 
you know, like half the people or, or somewhat fewer than half the people in the country are on yeah. public insurance. So aren't we already sort of halfway there? It's a big question. Um, they struggle with that. And that's very conceptually difficult. And mostly that's just because they, they struggle with the political problem that they, in principle, hate Medicare and Social Security, but all their voters are paranoid elderly people. <laughs> um, and so they're in this hilarious cosmic contradiction between what they need to do to win elections and uh, their actual ideology. But putting that aside, the middle of the report is, of course, the, rep- the, the part I become the most interested in because it's about the Nordic countries. The Nordics. The Nordic rhetoric is really starting to get to the right. Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland. I don't count it. I don't count. I don't count Iceland. Is that um, your, is that like a boutique, you know, reading of the Nordics? You know, I just don't count them. Okay. Any reason or? They're bullshit. It's okay. bullshit. Oh, well, all right. Not well. a real Nordic. Not a real Nordic. Okay. Well, but th- you can see that the rhetoric about uh, Nordic countries and how we could emulate some of their programs is really starting to bother the right. Yes. They find themselves in a really peculiar situation, though. Because, as we've discussed, I think, before on this podcast, the discussion around the Nordics uh, tends to go uh, a number of directions, or I would say two directions. You ha- And sometimes people make the same two uh, directions depending, you know, uh, you, see, you see it out of the same human being depending on the moment in time. Uh, position one for conservatives is uh, that the Nordic countries uh, are, are socialists. Sure, sure, sure. You've got me on that. But they suck. They're awful. They're trash, right? Mm-hmm. No one would ever want to live there. Oh, they're hellscapes. Yeah. And then you've got this other position where they go, yeah, Nordic countries are good, sure, but they're not really. They're really capitalist. They're actually even more capitalist than the U.S. is. If you look at the Economic Freedom Index. If you look at the Heritage Bullshit Index, um, <laughs> so they do that, right? Right. And the CEA report is weird because they they do both. Yeah. They go. <laughs> they go. I mean, I can read it for you from a direct quote. These places are capitalist and they suck hard. Yes. That's the position. <laughs> yeah. We have that in common. And it's like, wait a minute. So is capitalism bad? I mean, they've it's ruined the Nordic countries. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so that that is funny right off the bat is that on a meta level because they're trying to, I guess, navigate where conservatives are instead of trying to resolve the contradiction between good but capitalist and socialist but bad, they just go capitalist but bad. <laughs> like, okay, all right then. Um, but when you go into the details, you ignore the sort of meta parts and you kind of say, okay, what's, what's the deal with uh, the Nordics? Why are they bad? They have this uh, thing where they try to measure um, sort of standard of living across the two regions, Nordics versus U.S. Yeah. And they say that essentially the Nordic countries, the standard of living is 30% below the U.S. on average. Yeah. And this is a completely insane um thing to say and a lot of this and it's a very but it's a very telling thing to say because it like a lot of the statistics in that section is extremely 
uh, uh, bullshit and and the the way that they derive these numbers and the way that they present them uh, don't really reflect the differences between the countries. Mm -hmm. So the way that this works, the way they say the Nordic countries have a standard of living 30% below the United States is they say, uh, well, if you add up total individual consumption Uh uh, and you divide it by the number of people, then you get average actual individual consumption. Yeah. And if you do that, you'll notice that their average actual individual consumption is 30% below the United States. Yeah. And the problem here, as I point out, at People's Policy Project and then at Jacobin Magazine is that you need to make at least three and arguably as many as five transformations to actually compare the two countries in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, the first thing you want to do is you don't want to just compare individual consumption. Yeah. You need to compare total consumption. The way individual consumption works is you take total consumption and you subtract out collective consumption in the form of public services. Yeah. So it's like, well, yes, of course, if you uh, just decide that all collective consumption is worth nothing to well-being, then countries that are more collectivist are going to show up as having lower standards of living. But that sort of begs the question, doesn't it? Yeah. So in my measure, I say, let's do total consumption. Let's not do individual consumption. Let's do total consumption. The second thing we want to do here, especially since they talk so much about healthcare, is let's subtract out the excess money we have to spend every year on healthcare. The United States spends twice as much on a per capita basis on healthcare than the Nordic countries do, and yeah. actually more than that for some of them. But we don't get any better healthcare from it. In fact, we seem to have worse health outcomes than they have. So let's get rid of that because counting that as improving our standard of living seems to be like a clear mistake Yeah. because it isn't improving our standard of living. And then the last thing, let's account for the fact that they work way less than we work, uh. right? Because if you're only measuring consumption, then what that means is people, countries that decide to have more vacation and more free time they show up as having a lower standard of living because yeah. free time is not counted as having any consumption value. Yeah. It's just so the, the the assumption that goes into these measures is that free time is worthless. But but like it's not worthless. Um, you know, it's the weekend right now. It's Saturday and I, I quite like free time. Uh, I actually <laughs> really enjoy it myself. And consuming it. So when you kind of do those things, you say, let's do total consumption, not individual consumption. Right. Let's subtract out all this extreme waste in the healthcare system, which you're counting as improving well-being, but isn't. And let's adjust for the fact that they work fewer hours, which gives them more free time to consume, if not more shit to consume. Yes. And then what happens? And when you do that, the differences completely wipe out. Yeah. And that is for average consumption across the whole population. But... You wouldn't want to do average consumption. You also want to account for how that consumption is distributed. Those countries distribute far, uh, have a much more egalitarian distribution structure. So the bottom and middle are going to get much higher share of the consumption than they get in the United States. And then finally, as a very last thing you want to do, you need to account for the fact that things are more expensive in those regions for objective geographical reasons. These are basically, you know, these are countries that mir- that are right on the border of the Arctic Circle. Things are more expensive because they got to go across the Baltic Sea, they got to go through all this ice, just like things are more expensive in Alaska. And so if you make that 
consideration, then it gets even more. Yeah. And it's like you could go on and on in this and you could go on and on and on in this with all these statistics. But the point is that, you know, it's deceptive. It's a dishonest treatment. And yeah. there's there's no way that like, you know, a, a, a more accurate apples to apples comparisons are going to generate these kinds of conclusions that say such things as, you know, people in Finland have a 30% worse standard of living. It's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy claim. So I think that ultimately the cast can't endorse this report. Yes, I, yeah, I, I oh, yeah. One, one thing they also said was that <laughs> the imposition of Medicare for all by itself would cut national income by 9%. That's true. And then an unbelievable, I mean, amount. You think about 9% is, is, uh, I mean, is, is what, like nearly uh, uh, $1.6 trillion? That's amazing. <laughs> $1.6 trillion are going to get sucked out of the economy if we do Medicare for all. Yeah. That's how much, man, what a, what a recession that's going to be. God that damn. Fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking, and we've already done half all how we're already halfway to Medicare for all. And if you count yeah. the number of people publicly insured. So, I mean, well, Jesus. I just imagine what this economy would look like if children didn't have health care. Yeah, if we pull that out, then, you know, if you just do the math, yeah. then theoretically uh, it, it goes up 9%. If old people were dying in the street, <laughs> I would have like 12 TVs. <laughs> On a per capita basis, it does improve things if elderly people die. That's, uh, you, know, you know. If we just took them all off the rolls, I would have so many TVs. I could live in an igloo of TVs. <sighs> so you know that 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 report was widely panned. I don't think anyone took it seriously. Yeah. Even even some of the conservative articles that were like, "Come on, guys, stop joking about it." It made some good points. Where if you read the text of them, were like, eh, "It's ninety percent trash." The report ninety percent trash. But you know, here and there, there were some. Did you know here on the Brewcast, we care about you and we want to give you a rundown. That's true, and this is my area, so I feel like I need to you know to give it out to the to the folks. Yeah, but. I guess we're we're edging out over an hour now, so we won't we won't take up more of your time. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're gonna have a very special guest. Yeah, we keep teasing this, but it's gonna happen. It's actually it? gonna an happen. Unbelievable guest. You won't believe it. You won't believe it. Subscribe to uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheBrunegs. Beautiful guest, beautiful soul, beautiful spirit. We're so happy, uh, so happy to be setting this up. So just stay tuned. Bye bye. Love you. <laughs>